The book of Nahum the prophet, whose name does indeed mean comfort. Chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way. And clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea. He makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of Him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by Him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue His enemies into darkness. What we read in these words, the prophet Nahum apparently saw. And I want to pause and point out to you that back in verse 1, this is the book of the vision of Nahum. What he wrote down for us, he saw, he perceived, he understood. It's in the Hebrew, Sefer Hatzon, and it means the book of the seeing. The book of the vision of Nahum, the book of what Nahum saw. Abraham saw, same word in Genesis 15, Abraham saw the Lord in a vision. So did Jacob in visions of the night. Samuel, Natan, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel all saw visions. So did, as you know, Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Micah. And of course, Nahum. As well as Habakkuk and Zechariah after him. All of these saw visions. And the point is, the Lord gave the prophets actual, factual vision. Of what he was going to do, yeah, that's part of it. But far more importantly, what the Lord did was give vision of who he is. And I've been really stirred up by this the last couple of days. Yesterday I went back to study this again, to look through Nahum and think it through. And I was like, Lord, I'm not sure what to do with this because after the opening verses that we talked about on Sunday, it pretty much just gets into the judgment of Nineveh. I understand that. We can kind of read through it and go, okay, Nineveh, judge, done. You know, gavel falls, bye-bye, Nineveh, that's it. There's more here. And I kept praying that, Lord, I know there's more here. What do you want us to see? And what I heard was, how about me? Because the reality is, in any Bible study we do, the greater issue is not what he's saying, it's who he is. It's not what he's done or what he's going to do. Great though all those things may be, it is who he is. That is always the greater issue. And if you're struggling to understand a a biblical passage or book, stop and ask yourself, what does this tell me of God? What does this show me of Jesus? That will unlock, I believe, any passage you happen to be reading. Something you're seeking to understand. It's not just there to be there. It's not just part of a history. The Word of God is there to reveal 
Jesus, who is the Word of God. And so we come to the Word with that desire. Jesus said in John 14, verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in Me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on My own initiative, but the Father abiding in Me does His works. Note that. He says, Believe Me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in Me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He doesn't say believe in the works. He says believe because of the works. In other words, the works are the outflow of the nature of God. And that's different than us, by the way. My works are not always an outflow of my nature. If they were, I'd be a bad dude. My nature, my sin nature, wants to go contrary to the ways and the will of God. My works don't always reflect Him. His works always reflect His character. God is perfect integrity. He cannot work outside of, He cannot function outside of or differently than who He is. And so for all of His goodness and all of His grace and all of His power and even, yes, all of His vengeance, these things are the outflow of the character and nature of God. So when we read about His works, what we're seeing is representations of who He is. Which is why I believe Jesus said, otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Look at what I'm doing and understand that is a picture of my nature, of my very character. God is the only one who is in sync with Himself so perfectly. The rest of us struggle with integrity. Struggle to be you know, more like Jesus perhaps rather than like ourselves. Not the Lord. My works don't always reflect me. His works always do. And so John wrote in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Why? Because Jesus came walking on the earth, working the works of God, showing us in behavior and in action the very nature of the Father. With that in mind, as we look at what He does with Nineveh, we don't just get insight into history. We get insight into God. We get to see more of who He is. That's why Nahum's little book of seeing is so important. Why it's in the Scriptures. Because it goes to the nature of God. And what Nahum says, and I remind you of this we talked about on Sunday, what he shows us, what he sees, is the goodness of the vengeance of God. I don't think I could have put that together even before we came to this book. The goodness of the vengeance of God. That the vengeance is an outflow of His intrinsically good nature. Hopefully we'll understand that a little better even tonight. It's not just Nineveh's previous judgment under consideration here. It is God's perfect justice. Can we share on Sunday that Nahum is divided into three stanzas? The translators then just divide it into three chapters. But it's three stanzas of one vision. We'll go through it that way tonight. One stanza at a time. And I'll give you all three of them right now. If you want to jot them down, then you can follow through as we study. The first stanza is chapter 1. And in it we see the righteous avenger. The righteous avenger. The second stanza picks up in chapter 2. It is the routed aggressor. So we have the righteous avenger, and we have the routed aggressor. And then in chapter 3, the ruined Assyria. Righteous avenger, the routed aggressor, and finally the ruined Assyria. And we'll just use that as an outline. Let's pick it up in verse 9 where we left off Sunday morning. 
whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Proverbs 21 29 says, A wicked man displays a bold face, but as for the upright, he makes his way sure. It says, There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. You don't want to be in opposition to the righteous avenger. You don't want to be on the other side. He, Yes, he is good to the core, but out of that goodness rises vengeance against those who are opposed to goodness. Vengeance against those who would oppose holiness and righteousness, which is again His nature. And so whatever you devise against the Lord, He's going to make a complete end of it. He's not going to leave anything left over. It's gone. It's done. And the Scripture says distress will not rise up twice. What exactly does that mean? It means once the distress of His vengeance comes, it will be final. There will not be a second distress. God only distresses the one time. And that's it. Thankfully, we hear Nahum echoing Exodus chapter 34. We hear him calling the avenger slow to anger. You know, slow to bring that distress. If he wasn't, we wouldn't be here tonight. If God was not slow to anger, this world would no longer even exist. I often wonder, why didn't you just do it all in the flood? You know? Noah and his family, eight people were left. I'd say, that's about time to give up on the world. Eight folks, come on, Lord. He's slow to anger. Abounding in grace and, and loving kindness. But I think Nahum would remind us that when his anger is ignited, when he finally strikes, that's it. The book of Revelation describes that. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. Now, you've probably heard this. There are those who have chided that statement. The things that must soon take place. Well, that was 2,000 years ago, and clearly it did not soon take place. The problem is the Greek word for soon there doesn't have to do with immediacy so much as suddenness. That when this takes place, it will take place with rapidity, with with speed, with, with immediacy and suddenness. When God makes an end, it is both sudden and comprehensive. You read through the book of Revelation, study it, and it's interesting, especially from chapter 6 through 19, which describes that coming tribulation. It's, it's like a slow burn. It increases with intensity. The judgment's coming out faster and more and bigger and greater, and it just gets bigger and bigger. But as you're studying through it, you're going, wow, I mean, this is, we're going to get there. Eventually, we're going to get there. And then when Jesus comes in chapter 19, verse 11, it's over in three verses. I mean, it's almost a letdown. It happens so fast. You know, it's not like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Which the entire third movie is the battle. You know, the whole thing. No, you get to Revelation 11. Bam, bam, done. Because when He strikes, it's sudden. And it is comprehensive. And as Nahum says, distress will not rise up twice. Slow to anger. Sudden. 
in judgment. And while the Ninevites are the recipients of that anger here in the book of Nahum and in history, understand the entire world will be in the coming indignation. As Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. No distress will not rise up twice. Verse 10. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. And we talked about Sunday that the uh, Ninevites were drunk when they were attacked. Historically, we know that happened. And so the, the prophecy is just calling it like Nahum saw it in his vision. Verse 11, From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. This may be referring here to Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh, that wicked counselor of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. If you study these things with us a few years back now, you might remember he's the one who came along and taunted Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day. In Isaiah's day. Hezekiah's inside the city and you can hear Rabshakeh speaking these monstrous things against Israel, against Jerusalem, against the Lord, trying to wear down the people with his evil counsel. 2 Kings 18 and 19 tell the story. It's repeated in Isaiah 36 and 37. But what's interesting to me here is this wicked counselor here in verse 11. The word wicked in the Hebrew, and you might note this in your Bibles, is Belial. Belial, this wicked counselor is called Belial. Belial in the Hebrew simply means worthless or good for nothing. But Paul grabs hold of that Hebrew name and uses it, 2 Corinthians 6.14 saying, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever and Belial is used to personify Satan. And I think it's a perfect personification because the sum of all satanic counsel is worthlessness. Belial meaning worthless, and therefore the counsel of Satan is worthless. The enemy's counsel is always good for nothing. Though to some on the surface it might seem like power, or it might seem like a good thing to do, or it might seem like a pleasurable thing to do, but the truth is the counsel of the enemy is worthless. There's no value to it, and yet God's counsel is always good. Verse 12, thus says the Lord. Though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, now he's speaking to Judah, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord's talking back and forth. First he talks to Assyria there, saying even though they, Assyria, are at full strength, and Nineveh is at full strength, though you... Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now he's looking at Judah. Speaking comfort. Comfort for Judah, even in the judgment of Nineveh. He's afflicted Judah, but he's never made a complete end of Judah. 
that the Jewish people in existence today, still the people of God. We've looked at that and talked about that so many times. But where's Nineveh on the world stage today? It's an archaeological find. That's about it. It's the stuff of Bible stories and veggie tales. You know, that's that's Nineveh. Where is Israel? Center of the world, gang. Center of the world. The focus of the nations. Jerusalem is still the cup that causes reeling. It's remarkable. And the Lord says, I'm going to take care of you, though they may be of full strength. And though I've afflicted you, Judah, I will do so no longer. I will break his yoke. I'll tear off your shackles. Comfort for Judah. Verse 14. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. And now he's speaking directly to Nineveh. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. How does that peace come? By the destruction of Nineveh. So what is destruction and judgment for one people is peace for another here. He says, celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. And again, the wicked one here is Belial. Now this particular Belial, this particular wicked one, is probably speaking of Sennacherib, again the king of Assyria. And what's amazing when we see the intricacy of this prophecy is it tells us exactly how Sennacherib died. Look at verse 14 again. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. I would take that little period after God's there out because there was no punctuation in it originally in the Hebrew. From the house of your gods, I will prepare your graves. Here is how Sennacherib died. 185,000 of his soldiers were sent up against Jerusalem. You know the story. They encamped around Jerusalem. They were going to wipe out Jerusalem. And in the morning, when all the Jerusalemites woke up and looked outside the city wall, there were 185,000 corpses. For God had taken them all out. Now, Sennacherib made his way back home. I know, I'm hearing the vengeance here, Susie, and that's a little disturbing. I get an amen for 185,000 dead people. I, I don't know why that happened. No, I'm kidding. It was an amen, and the whole city were saying amen. What else could you say? Yes, Lord, because not a single shot was fired. But Sennacherib made it back to Assyria. He got back to Nineveh. He went home went into his pagan temple, began worshiping his pagan gods, and his two sons assassinated him there. Listen to the verse in that context. From the house of your gods I will prepare your grave. For you are contemptible. And so Nahum said exactly how Sennacherib himself would be taken out. And so he was. Prophetically, however, Belial is Satan. And the promise fulfilled specifically here historically with Sennacherib will be fulfilled prophetically once the kingdom comes. The devil will never again pass through Jerusalem. He'll never make it through there. Now you Bible students know that after the tribulation that the Bible speaks of that thousand year reign of Christ from Revelation chapter 20 what we call the millennial kingdom, the kingdom age promised to Israel. What's interesting is at the end of that age, we're told that Satan is released for a short amount of time. You guys remember that? 
He's set free. We're told that in that setting loose, He will end up leading a massive revolt here on planet Earth against the Lord. And it will reveal once and for all the the absolute sickness, the evil of Satan, and the depravity of man. That even after a thousand years of Christ's perfect rule and reign, still people are going to choose to rebel. That's the sin nature. But in all of that, we're told in Revelation 20 verse 9, they came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them, see, sudden and complete. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Susie, say it with me. Amen. 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 Nahum... Nahum borrows a phrase now from Isaiah and Paul. He says, Behold, on the mountains of the, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Peace cannot come until the one who takes away peace is completely and finally dealt with. And he will be. And Isaiah grabs hold of this and uses it looking forward to the coming kingdom. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Beautiful feet. We were out to dinner with Bill and Sharon, my in-laws. And Sharon shares, I'm in the middle of, uh, of, of eating my, my little, what do they call that, Alice Springs chicken, you know, out the outback. And Sharon begins sharing how beautiful Bill's feet are. And I'm like, I don't need to hear that. Really? Right now? I'm looking at my chicken. Little bacon sticking out of the cheese like toes. I'm like, what? But the Bible says if you want beautiful feet, you bring good news. And Paul grabs hold of what Isaiah and then Nahum says and says, look, there's a way to have beautiful feet right now. You be among those who bring good news, who announce salvation. Isaiah says, who announce salvation and say to Zion, your God reigns. Paul says in Romans 10.14, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring Good news of good things. If you want beautiful feet like Bill, bring good news. And I would love it if on Sunday morning, 10 or 12, you go up to Bill and say, heard you have beautiful feet. (laughs) Isaiah proclaims the kingdom. Nahum comforts the people. And Paul challenges you and me to be those who are bringers of good news. How are they going to hear unless we tell them? I mean, consider all the homes of all the people. How are they going to hear? Unless we knock on the door, unless we call them up, unless we see them on the street, unless we walk up to them and say, I've got good news. And that good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be those who have... I want this fellowship to have beautiful feet. That's really the the motivation here. That we be a people whose feet are just beautiful. So Isaiah proclaims the imminency of the kingdom. Paul invites us to proclaim the immediacy of salvation. And the righteous avenger gang is responsible for both. The righteous avenger 
Because He's the one who avenges sin for my salvation on the cross. And He is the one who will avenge His saints even as He ushers in the final piece of the glorious kingdom. Well, that brings us to chapter 2 and the second stanza. The routed aggressor. The routed aggressor. Verse 1. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress. Watch the road. Strengthen your back. Summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. Judah gets three doses of comfort in the whole prophecy. Just three. Three verses out of the three stanzas. But they are potent. Back in verse 7, I remind you, the Lord is good, a stronghold in day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Oh, be comforted, Judah, in those words. Verse 15 of chapter 1, Behold on the mountains of the, uh, the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, Judah. Pay your vows. Never again will the wicked one pass through you. He's cut off completely. Be comforted, people of Judah. And then finally, verse 2 of chapter 2, The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. Nahum, writing in 630 B.C., is writing roughly 90 years, no, 80 years, 80 years after the fall of the northern kingdom. And this prophet says God is going to restore the northern kingdom Israel to its former glory as He's going to restore all of Jacob. And that's a comforting word for God's people. But here's the reason for the divine vengeance against Nineveh. It is that Assyria had set itself against God's people, against Judah. Verse 3, continuing on, The shields of His mighty men are red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when He is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. Now, I just got to pause for a second and point something out here. Some used to say that verse 4 was a forecast of the Ford. In other words, it's a prophecy of the automobile. There it is. The chariots must be cars racing madly in the streets and rushing rushing wildly in the squares. Their appearance like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. It's the Seattle freeway. (laughs) And God prophesied of it right here. Listen, the Bible is not a hodgepodge of prophetic words here and there. For us to pull out and, and, and... and, and grab the mystery and discuss this esoteric truth of the car, the automobile that God was prescribing. It's amazing what people will do with Scripture, what they'll do with one individual verse, pull it out and say, look, this applies to me here. This is about what's happening. Because be careful with that. There's always, as Brian likes to say, there's one interpretation. There are many applications, and you can certainly apply individual verses and passages to your life, but there's one interpretation, there's one truth. And sound doctrine must be biblically understood and interpreted. 
What does the automobile have to do with the judgment of Nineveh? Nothing. It's not a prophecy of the automobile. Going on, verse 5. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall. And the mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She's carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Now, let me show you the fulfillment of prophecy here. This is remarkable. In fact, these few verses are among those in Scripture that are so specific. It's amazing. Let me take you back to Diodorus Seculus. Diodorus, that ancient historian. And this is exactly what he wrote historically about what happened. Remember, Nahum wrote what he wrote before it happened. Diodorus now writes, There was an old prophecy that Nineveh should not be taken till the river become an enemy with the city. Nahum's prophecy, as it turns out. And in the third year of the siege, the river being swollen with continual rain, suddenly overflowed every part of the city and broke down the wall for 20 furlongs, that is for three miles. The king of Nineveh, thinking that the oracle was fulfilled and the river became an enemy of the city, built a large funeral pyre in the palace and collected together all his wealth, his concubines and his eunuch and burned himself and the palace and all. The enemy entered at the breach the waters had made and took the city. That's the historical account. The prophetical account. Remarkable. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall and the mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened. The palace is dissolved. That word dissolved also means dismayed or faint-hearted. The palace is dismayed. It's fixed. She's stripped. She's carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts as they burn to death in the palace. So Nahum is laying out exactly what would come on Nineveh. Nineveh was so completely destroyed that no evidence existed of it ever being there. Nothing was found. For years and years, this is one of those cities mentioned in the Bible that people wondered, well, there's nothing there. There's no proof that city ever existed until 1845. And in 1845, Sir Austin Henry Layard discovered its remains. For 2,457 years, no one could prove the existence of Nineveh, though the Bible declared it. And yet, with the archaeological discovery, all of these truths came out. And I'll share a couple of the discoveries with you in a few minutes. Verse 8. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop! But no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is empty, yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body and all their faces are grown pale. Nineveh is called in verse 8, a pool, implying a relaxing, restful place, teeming with life. You know, a, a, a city where that, that's the place to live. Man, if you're an Assyrian, you'll want to live in Nineveh. A beautiful pool. And now the pool is going to be emptied out. It's interesting, Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 13 regards Babylon in a very similar way. Babylon who took down Nineveh 
is described this way, You who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come, the measure of your end. And so Babylon, who destroyed Nineveh, Assyria, would itself go down in very much the same way. How many times have we seen history repeat itself? Again and again with the fall of nations. When I was describing Nineveh on Sunday and this whole idea that they were partying and that they were drunk inside the city and they thought the city was impregnable and they thought that the river around it was strong enough and the walls were high enough, did anyone else think about Babylon? That that's exactly what happened to the Babylonians when the Medes and Persians came rushing in? It's incredible. The parallels here. The historical parallels. And yet, one nation refuses to learn from another. As if each successive nation has finally figured it all out. We're just smarter than the last one, so we really don't need to look at their demise because we got it all together. And that's a dangerous place to be. Verse 11, Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, lioness, and lion's cubs prowled with nothing to disturb them. The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Sennacherib himself was actually quoted on one of the many structures, monuments, discovered there in the archaeological remains of Assyria, of Nineveh. He actually said, Like a lion I raged. Comparing himself to the lion, the figure of the lion was on many of the Assyrian um, artifacts. Yes, the lion was a Babylonian symbol as well, but the lion portrays strength and power, and so both the Assyrians and the Babylonians thought the lion was a cool decoration. As much as the Assyrian king was like a raging lion, Nineveh itself was like a secure, undisturbed, well-fed den Verse 13 tells us, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Those who oppose the Lord will hear Him say, I am against you. Jeremiah 21, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, O valley dweller, O rocky plain, declares the Lord. You men who say, who will come down against us? Who will enter into our habitations? But I will punish according to the results of your deeds, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest that it may devour all its environs. God will come against those who are opposed to Him. And it is a message within the gospel message itself that needs to be clarified. And we're talking about the judgment of the avenger on Sunday morning. And this is not a topic that we like to go to so much. I don't. I so much more like to talk about the grace of God than I do the judgment and the vengeance. Although vengeance can be fun too, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Susie understands, right? <laughs> But the truth is, man, if I'm talking to someone about Jesus, the vengeance factor is one that I tend to avoid, and yet you need to listen to the Spirit of God because there are times where He wants to make it clear. If you stand opposed to God, He will stand opposed to you. And if God be opposed to you, you have no hope. 
And there may yet be a time in a relationship with someone who rejects grace over and over and over that you need to share the vengeance. With love, with compassion, but making it clear, as Jesus said, here's one of those verses that, that I, I've always been a little you know, wary of. Matthew 10.32, He says, Everyone who confesses Me before men, I will also confess Him before My Father who is in heaven. And I'm like, yes, Jesus, now stop right there. But He doesn't. Whoever denies Me before men, I will deny Him before My Father who is in heaven. So you have the choice. You can have Christ confess you or you can have Christ deny you. You can have God stand for you or you can have God be against you. And that is the end of any and everyone who opposes the Lord, that the Lord Himself will stand against them. Now, if you don't think that's fair, the converse is equally true. Romans 8.31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? That God would choose to be for you if you would simply be for Him. And that's the deal. It's serious business. It's life or death. It is eternity with or without the goodness of God. And it's one of the more clearer statements of judgment in Scripture. And Nineveh is just another picture of it. An entire nation of people set against the Lord. What happens? And Nahum makes that very clear. The righteous avenger, the routed aggressor, and now the irreversible, you might add that in, the ruin of Assyria. The irreversible ruin of Assyria. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. Completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip. The noise of the rattling of the wheel. Galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. The irreversible ruin of Assyria is rooted in horrific violence. Assyria was known as the most brutal nation in history. The things that they did. Speaking of the noise of the rattling of the wheel of the chariots, they would put spikes on their chariot wheels and drive them over people, their captives who they had brought in from other nations. Blood in the street. Body parts. I mean, it was unbelievably violent. They were experts at fish hooks. We've talked about that several times before. That's how they led their captives into captivity. They'd put a fish hook into the jaw or the mouth and line them all up with a rope running through every fish hook and march them across the desert. And I guarantee people stayed in line until their strength came out, gave out and they fell to the ground. They were experts in live flayings. They would flay people, flay their skin and stretch it out on the city walls. Let me just read some of the statements inscribed on various Assyrian monuments that were discovered. Quote, I cut off their heads and formed them into pillars. I cut off the limbs of the royal officers who had rebelled. Three thousand captives I burned with fire. Their corpses I formed into pillars. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses, their eyes, their their ears and their fingers, and out of many I, I took their eyes. 
I made one pillar of the living and another of heads. I bound their heads to posts around the city. And it was said that when Assyria went to battle and demolished a foe, they would pile up heads in great pillars at the entrance to Nineveh. This was a bloody, violent people. But I need you to understand something. For all the violence that was so typically Assyrian, even seen in these three verses, these three verses are not about the violence of Assyria, they are about the violence done to Assyria. That the blood in the streets, the bounding of the chariots, the horsemen charging, the massive corpses, the countless dead bodies that are stumbled over are Assyrian dead bodies in Nineveh. This is what happened when the Babylonians and the Medes and the Scythians and the Persians came rushing in. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, verse 4. The charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. We now hear that for the second time. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle and it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? God says, I'm going to do to you, Nineveh, exactly what you've done. It's going to come right back around on you. And so not only is there horrific violence here, but there are harlotrous vices. Not sure if harlotrous is a word, but we're going to make it one tonight. Harlotrous vices of the Assyrian people. Something else that that portrays the Assyrians. Their carnality is legendary. In terms of idol worship and sexual perversion and sorcery, and all of this was melded together in their pagan religion. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 says... Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul there illuminates, talks about the deeds of the flesh that stand in sick and rotten contrast then to the sweet fruit of the Spirit, which he describes in the following verses. The fruit of the Spirit is often talked about in the church, not so much the deeds of the flesh, but the deeds of the flesh are the other choice. It's the alternative. Deeds that are naturally practiced versus fruit that is spiritually produced. Before Jesus comes, things are going to get rotten. And the deeds of the flesh are on the march in the world. I read that passage again, Galatians 5, 19-21, and I thought, how much of this do you see in five minutes of TV? You know, How much of this do you get in conversations in the marketplace? And what's going on in our world? And this is the world that we find ourselves living in. And while the fruit of the Spirit is sweet, the deeds of the flesh is rotten. Now, upside, brothers and sisters in Christ, what does that mean? It means when you go to a bowl, I'll give you an example. We got a a bowl of peaches from Barb the other day. Oh, they were so good. 
until they started to rot. We have four or five that were in the bowl that were rotten to the core. You, you pick them up and you kind of go, you know, and half of it would still be in the bowl. You're like, ah. Pretty sure one half actually crawled out of the bowl. I'm not sure. But you have those. And then you have the sweet fruit. And we got rid of, of the rotten fruit. And that's the deal in the world. Believers, followers of Jesus, we have the fruit of the Spirit, which is so sweet in a world that is rotting. And it makes it that much more sweet. The distinction, don't, don't be discouraged as the world gets more rotten. Don't be discouraged, followers of Jesus, because it just makes you more sweet. And it just makes the light brighter. And it makes the truth more glorious. And, and the decision is, <clears throat> excuse me, the decision is far easier than in a world where you couldn't really, you know, everyone pretty much went to church. Not anymore in this country. Allow people to see the distinction of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It's the glory of God among us, gang. And the world, I think, will see it better. But things will get rotten. Revelation 9, verse 20 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Sounds like Nineveh. And they did not repent of their murders or of their sorceries or of their immorality or of their thefts. And I point that out just to say this use of the word sorcery here is interesting because sorcery has always involved drug use. That's part of sorcery. And the word sorceries in Revelation is pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy having to do again with drugs. And listen again to verse 4 of chapter 3. Because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mystery, mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. So the picture we get here of Nineveh is a culture that is in love with violence, with carnality, with sexual immorality, and a rampant drug culture. That's Nineveh. And it sounds so familiar. Some commentators think that the Democrats' best chance of keeping the Senate in this fall's midterm election is to come out strong in favor of legalizing pot in their states. Because by so doing, they can get younger voters out to the polls and win the election. And so one of the strategies that's actually floated out there is to, you know be a strong proponent of the legalization of marijuana. I'm like, drug culture. The irreversible ruin of Assyria. It was rooted in horrific violence, in harlotrous vices, and finally in historical vacancy. In other words, they didn't learn from history. Babylon would not learn from the history of Nineveh. Will we? Historical vacancy. Verse 8 going on. Are you better than Noaman? You remember we shared Sunday. That's Thebes, the Egyptian city. Fell in 663 B.C. Are you better than Noaman? Disrupted Thebes? Which was situated by the waters of the Nile with waters surrounding her whose rampart was the sea whose wall consisted of the sea. Ethiopia was her might and Egypt too without limits. Put and Lubim which are both aspects of Libya were among her helpers, and yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with 
fetters. And again, as we talked about on Sunday, the Spirit recalls the destruction of the Egyptian city of Thebes, something the Assyrians should have been familiar with. Why? Because the Assyrians are the ones who destroyed Thebes. They, they carried out that destruction. It's, it's amazing. Nahum comes along and he says, By the Spirit, don't you remember Thebes? Do you remember Noamon? Any thinking Assyrian would go, Well, yeah. It's pretty bloody. I was there. And he says, Are you better than they are? Do you think that your demise is going to be avoided? Any more than theirs? Historical vacancy. But understand this, that ruin, ruin always has roots. The ruination of a nation or an individual is always rooted in something. And Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Nineveh is a perfect picture of that. The destruction of the Assyrians and that great nation went down exactly the way they destroyed other nations. You're going to sow to violence, you will reap violence. You're going to sow to drug abuse, you're going to reap drug abuse. The fallout. You're going to sow to sexual immorality. From sexual immorality, you will reap the benefits of that. And yet people don't learn. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. I used the example years ago about taking a beautiful porterhouse steak and burying it in the yard and wait about six months and then pull it up and see if you'd like to cook it up and eat it. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption and the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so what Nahum describes is a nation here that is ripe for ruin. Verse 12, all your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth, a tree that is so ready to cast its fruit. And Assyria was ready to be shaken. Behold, your people are women in your midst. Yes, Nahum just called the soldiers a bunch of girls. <laughs> the gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Now, no, no offense intended for the ladies, but God's language in, indicates a weakness here that should be a little surprising because we have mighty Assyria. The Assyrian army was a terror to the nations round about. They were strong as lions and now they're weak as women. Mighty Assyria lost the will to fight. They lost the will to stand up and be counted. Yes, they were cruel, they were barbaric, they were a violent society, but when it came to bravely defending their homeland, they were weak, they were ineffective, they were bored, and they were stoned. And so they went down. And now the prophecy takes us directly into the city as if we come rushing in with the invading force. Midway through verse 13, the gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. (laughs) Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. And we know from the excavations in Mosul, Iraq, Nineveh, We know from those excavations that a second wall was half built 
In other words, the Assyrians were trying to build a counter wall, a secondary wall, as the invasion was taking place. Exactly what he says. Go to the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Try to build for yourself some kind of protection. It's not going to help. The fire. Their, their fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. And it will consume you as the locust does. And in the findings of the dirt, also in ancient Nineveh, were massive amounts of ash deposits that indicate, indicate quite clearly that the city was burned to the ground. That's what the prophet said would happen. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers setting in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee and the place where they are is not known. The guardsmen, the marshals, are among those who are the invading force. The picture of the locusts here are not the Assyrians, although the Assyrians were compared to a locust-like army in the past. Joel talks about the locusts and while Joel is prophetic of future things also the indication is those locusts were speaking somewhat of Assyria but here the swarming locusts the hordes of grasshoppers sitting in the stone walls on a cold day that's not good all it needs to do is warm up a little bit and you got grasshoppers everywhere and he says that's what it's like the invading forces rushing in destroying the city and then vanishing back into their own nations leaving nothing behind Well, that's what a locust swarm does. They swarm across, they wipe out, and then they're gone, and nothing's left. That will be Assyria. That will be Nineveh. Verse 18. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather. Aren't you glad you know the shepherd who never sleeps? He is always wide awake. The Bible says, Psalm 121, verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? When we studied that, I pointed out to you, the lifting up the eyes to the mountains is not looking for help. It's looking at the mountains as a threat. I am surrounded by by mountains of terror. I lift up my eyes. I see this. Where's my help going to come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is wide awake. And I know this because He keeps waking me up at 3 (laughs) a.m. I've shared that before and I guess it's just seasons. The last six weeks, (laughs) roughly, about 3 o'clock in the morning, bing, and there I am. You know, first couple or three nights I thought, well, I'll watch something on Netflix, you know, and then I finally realized. God's like, hey, Rick, you want to talk? Lord, Rick, come on, let's talk. He never sleeps. I do. But he never does. And I love that. My father is keeping watch over me. The shepherd is watching the sheep constantly, always, no matter what's going on in our lives. He's keeping watch. 
Well, what about the seventh day? Didn't God rest on the seventh day? Yeah, eyes wide open. John chapter 5, verse 16 tells us for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now think about that. God proclaimed the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. He proclaimed the Sabbath, said, here's a good thing for you, day off, day of rest, spend time with me, and be rejuvenated in this time, because the Lord rested on the seventh day. Well, along comes Jesus, the personification of the Father, God among us in the flesh, and He starts doing work on the Sabbath. In fact, it almost looks like Jesus went out of His way to heal on the Sabbath. If it was Saturday, it's like, I'll wait till tomorrow and get to them then. <laughs> or, or Friday, He would do it on Saturday, on, the, on Shabbat. But he answered, listen to what he said. I've never seen this before. The Jews are persecuting him. They're angry with him because he's healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them. He said, my father is working until now. Or or translation, my father's at work right now. I know it's a Sabbath day, but God's at work. And I myself am working. Jesus was working on the Sabbath. Because there is a kind of work that is restful. There is a kind of work that brings peace. It's the work that recognizes the character and the nature of God. Remember what we started with tonight? We talked about His works. Explain, express who He is with perfect integrity. And so the Lord is always at work, always awake. Even in the day of rest... Because my rest comes, the Hebrew writer says, Hebrews 12, from diligently seeking to enter his rest. Access Hebrews 4. Let us be diligent. In other words, work hard to enter the rest. There is a work that brings rest, a Sabbath rest in the work of God. For the work of the Father flows out of his nature. You know why Jesus healed on the Sabbath? It really wasn't to prove a point. He did so because the compassion of God is unstoppable. And if there's a man in the synagogue whose hand is withered, Jesus sees him and goes, stretch out your hand. If there's a guy who's blind, Jesus says, let's give you some sight. If there's a mute, Jesus says, speak and praise the Lord. The work of the Father that so expresses His nature. Well, verse 19 closes out, There is no relief in your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? And in 612 B.C., Nineveh fell rotten to the core. An incurable wound. That's an interesting phrase. What do you do with an incurable wound? Nahum's prophecy is one of the most immediately and completely fulfilled in Scripture. What he shared in 630 took place in 612. I mean, that quickly. Nineveh, mighty Assyria, wiped out. His prophecy here ends, and this was what was a little distressing for me uh, yesterday, early on in the day when I'm trying to... Lord, how, how do... I know what your word says. How do we present this? What what are we doing? The prophecy ends with the sounding of crackling, smoldering, smoldering embers. Nineveh gone down, wiped out. But it ends reminding us that while God is love, Hebrews twelve twenty nine says, our God is also a consuming fire. 
But the context of that verse, the Hebrew writer pulls that. Our God is a consuming fire. He pulls that from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, which says, The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree. Right? Love that song. You might call God the avenger of the beloved. Yes, He is a God of vengeance against all those who come against those whom He loves. Well, who does He love? He loves anyone who says, I believe you. Anyone who comes to Him. Anyone who falls on their knees before Him and says, You are Lord. The beloved. So the vengeance and the jealousy and the wrath of God come from a a passionate and a protective love for His people. Flowing, again, right out of His nature. A nature that demands the same love be offered to all people. And remember, it had been. That love was offered to to Nineveh through Jonah the prophet 150 years earlier. God said, if you repent, I will spare you. And we can be in relationship. Should I not, he says to Jonah, shall I not have compassion on these pagan Gentiles? His compassion, his love is for everybody. He pours it out. But things had gotten so sick in Nineveh, their wound became incurable. Truly a mortal wound. So what do you do with an incurable wound? When, as Isaiah says, Isaiah 1.5, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. What do you do with the incurable wound? And the Lord says, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Only the blood of the jealous avenger can cure the incurable sin in my heart. That's just remarkable. And that is the nature and the character of God. Vengeance against sin. So much so that He takes the sin on Himself to cure the wound that we would all have otherwise. Praise His name. God, You are awesome. You are a remarkable God. We worship You. We praise You. We honor You, Lord. We don't have words enough to express our thanksgiving to You. And what we find so incredible, beings who lack integrity so often ourselves, is is how You are just perfect. Perfect in love. Perfect in grace. Perfect in judgment. Perfect in mercy. Perfect in justice. Perfect in forgiveness. Perfect in righteousness. Absolutely holy. And completely giving of yourself. And we are undeserving. But we receive your grace. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for curing the incurable wound in our lives. May we now be those who rush along the mountains shouting out the good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.